Well, good morning, and I can see uh, everybody on the cold weather loves coming to the second service, waiting for the sun to come out. Ferris, Lord Jesus. Uh, what a way to start the year. Well, during this holiday season, I've been trying to help us walk through uh, some various areas that are not only just about remembering the coming of the second person of the Trinity, but are especially about responding to the coming of the second person of the Trinity. Folks, God has come, and He has come, and He has been with, and He's died on the cross, and He's risen from the dead, and oh my word, um, that's just something not to know about. That's something to respond to. And I've been picking out uh, uh, some key areas, the first of which was right after Thanksgiving about big, bold, bodacious gratitude. And uh, the reason I pulled out that one is because a big, bold, bodacious gratitude people uh, understand that God is at work. Uh, listen, how in a day when things aren't so great or life may be hard or a struggle for you or for any person, how is it that anybody can be grateful in times of trials? Here's why. Because there is a God and there is a God that is at work in that. And we want to be a place that gets that that sees that, that understands it. But then we went on the next week and we talked about a big, bold, bodacious vision. Uh, vision people move beyond gratitude and see that God has a call on their lives. It's the kind of thing to where uh, when, I, when I was seven years old and I received Christ as my Savior, really all I knew at that time was that um, uh, I was a sinner separated from God, and if I receive Christ as my Savior, the Bible says I'm forgiven of my sins, and I can have an eternal life with Him. I just wanted to go to heaven. <laughs> my wife, uh, what motivated her about the same age of life was that she heard in the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that means that if I don't receive Christ, I'm going to hell. And uh, so Karen didn't want to go to hell. I wanted to go to heaven. But that's all about all we knew as a child at that time. But I will tell you, as time went along and I began understanding more and more that it wasn't just about the future. God has a call on the follower of Christ's life. And people of vision see the call, but it doesn't stop there. Then next week we talked about big, bold, bodacious giving. Uh, giving people, uh, get on, get on, get after the call that God has. Uh, it's about my schedule. It's about my skills. It's about my stuff. Listen, I can have a vision about something, if you will, of something I want to accomplish, purpose, and so forth, but it, it's not until we get after that vision that it really starts getting exciting. And a lot of times people, followers of Christ, will understand the vision, but they don't get after it. And it's about giving as a person. Then uh, last Sunday, we talked about big, bold, bodacious relationship relationship people engage with others because of the God call in their lives. Listen, oftentimes the truth of the matter is, is we want to impact people by distance. I don't want to have to get in. I don't want to have to get in the messiness of life or the, the time and the schedule and these kinds of things. But I want to tell you, if we're going to have the kind of Matthew 28, 19 and 20 that we talked about, vision, reality of go and make disciples, that means the follower of Christ must get involved in other people's lives. Not like, I want to get in your life. 
you know, nitpicky, but it's like, I want to influence. I don't know if you remember if you were here a few Sundays ago in the baptism, and Justin Moore, I still have not forgotten in the baptism and his testimony, he says, out of what God's done in my life, I want to become someone that influences others. Listen, you cannot do that from a distance. Just imagine, God, give me one, give me two, give me three people that I can engage myself in and put myself into them and helping them grow in Christ. Well, today we finish it off with big, bold, bodacious prayer. Big, bold, bodacious prayer. There actually is a sequence to these, and that's why I wanted to bring these up as we get started this morning. I think they flow into one another. And I'll state it this way, big, bold, bodacious prayer people center it all with the God that is at work. Prayer centers. Prayer centers life. Before I talk more about that, uh, I want to kind of talk to you about a couple other things. One, today in this sermon time is going to be a little bit different. This is about me talking through a journey I'm presently on. Today is very much about me knowing that months ago, I knew this Sunday was going to come, and knowing what God's just been teaching, impressing in my heart and in my own personal life with Him in this area. And uh, I, I say that because teaching on prayer over the years, I've observed in myself and with others that usually when teaching on prayer goes on, there's walking away with guilt, confusion, and or concern. Um, guilt. Many walk away, and it's been me oftentimes, guilty about talking about this topic. In fact, it's like, we're going to talk on prayer, oh crud. And the reason for the guilt is oftentimes in the sermons, the th illustrations that are used are something like this. At the end of the sermon, it gets down to... There was a, a man, there was a woman in England in the 1800s who had 28 children. They'd go to bed every night at midnight, working hard all day long, and they would wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning and pray for four hours because they were a person of prayer. And I'm sitting there going, boy, I stink. And also I'll say this, asking the question, is that what the Bible's really talking about? And there's just a guilt thing oftentimes that comes out of this. Uh, I'm just very transparent on a journey with you and what I'm going through. Because uh, I've also seen uh, sermons who have talking about uh, concern me. Um, or I'm sorry, confuse me. And this, I believe in the sovereignty of God. And, and God is going to do what God's going to do. And yet how can I, my puny little prayers, alter the course of God? Have you ever thought about that? I'm dead serious. For me, for years, that has been something, and I still don't get it. But I just go back to God says pray. But then is that it? It confuses me at times because I believe in the sovereignty of God. And sometimes it concerns me because the other is I hear it talked about like this. Prayer is a two-way conversation with God, and I need to quiet myself before the Lord and listen for Him to speak. I've never heard God speak. I don't know about you. I wish I would. Wouldn't that be cool? I just wonder what that would sound like. 
But oftentimes that's been the case. And I've sat there and it's just confused me, concerned me. And the other on top of that is I've thought, okay, generally I think that's interpreted meaning this idea of saying that, that God moves me. I just feel this peace. I feel this feeling that's God helping me feel in this thing. And yet I've never heard along with that the teaching of the reality of the scripture talks about the total depravity and the noetic effect of sin theologically, which is the all-penetrating noose of sin on us. The heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it, the Old Testament says. And yet I've got this feeling. Seriously, how do I know if that's me or God or someone else? Someone else, what are you talking about? Well, because the scriptures talk about how Satan and demons are going around like a roaring lion seeking to deceive people. Satan is an angel of light. And I walk away oftentimes going, hmm, how do we know? Well, as I told you, this is a very transparent day with you. Because frankly, I've longed for the day when the person speaking on prayer would come up and stand up and say this. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I struggle to pray. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I struggle to be a man of prayer. I tell you, you're faster. Acts 6 4. Prayer in the Word. I know. Believe me, I know. But for years, this whole prayer thing, I haven't really gotten a hold of it. It's been more of a function, it's been more of a duty. I think part of the reason for that is there's four common views of prayer. I've kind of put them in this way. First, there's the great Oz approach. Uh, God is the great Oz. And I come shaking and quivering and like the lion there. And it's like, God, I have no idea what you're going to do, but I know you're big and you scare the living life out of me. And it's kind of like that manner of approaching the throne. And I understand there's a part of reality of that, but yet is that the way it is? Because last week I talked about how God desires to have relationship. And there's not a whole lot of relationship here. It's a whole lot of scaring the tar out of me, right? Okay, so maybe not that, but it's, it's the type of thing where I think the other is the magic aid ball. God, I've got some decisions to make, and I come before you and show me. See, like that. God is calling. <laughs> right? That was perfect timing, by the way. You know, and it's in it. It's just like, God, uh, show me, you know, tip the ball, show me. I want it easy. I don't know. Do I take this job? Do I go there? Do I have that? Do I get married? Do I not get married? Do I, do I have kids? Do we have, what's the money? What's the, God, just show me. And it's kind of that approach. Well, uh, third, I think oftentimes the other one that comes out is, is the magic lamp. God, the lamp. And God, I'm in a predicament right now because they're running after me and about to get me. And, and we see this in the Psalms, but it's kind of, I'm talking about the attitude where it's like, God, I'm, I, I come to you now and I'm rubbing you now, Lord, so that you will be able to poof, take care of my problems. And fourth is uh, such a common thing, the three minutes on Santa's lap. God, I would like blank and blank and blank for me, and I would like blank and blank for my friend. I just want to say, I know these four very well. I know these four 
very well. So what's it supposed to look like? What's, what's it supposed to be? Well, I just want to tell you about some of the journey. Today's about walking with me through my bizarre journey ahead and what the Lord's been doing in my life. And I'd say this, I'm seeing prayer much and more as this relational centering place. This centering. As I see Scripture, and we're going to go to some in the Psalms and in the Gospels, as I see in Scripture, I see more and more that those people where we see prayer, it's like they're coming to this table. It's like coming to a table and life is there. This is the image that, that has just helped me to, I'm a very visual person, and it's just helping me get a better understanding, I think, of what's taking place here. And, and in this table, it has five seats. Uh, at this table, there is God the Father, the head. And there is also then God the Son. The scripture tells us that the Son, Jesus Christ, acts on our behalf. And the scripture also says that he intercedes. Uh, also at the table is God the Spirit, who likewise, the scripture says, intercedes for us, helps us to pray, helps us in life, convicts us, illuminates. Uh, and then there's a fourth one that oftentimes I think we completely forget about the reality of that I think, uh, in a way, we're going to see take place in some of the passages we go to today, the Word of God. The Word of God, the Bible. The Word of God. Listen, if I want to be able to have some understanding on what God has to say to me and to my situations and to life, I think the place that we would want to go to be able to hear, to be able to know what God has to say would be the place that we call the Word of God. Yet how often do we bring that to the table? The Spirit of God uses the Word of God and the person of God. Oh, and which also reminds me, there's a fifth seat there. And get a load of this one. This one's really awesome. The redeemed. Okay, listen, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have a seat. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3 tells about the depraved, total depravity of mankind. And then verse 4 starts talking about, but God and what he's done for us. And you, when you read through Ephesians chapter 2, you see that he's raised us, he's placed us. Listen, what I am not saying here in this image about this idea of prayer is that God, I'm trying to lower God to our level of a table. The reality is, is what I'm seeing more and more is get a load of this. I, as someone redeemed in Christ, have the opportunity to be at his table. Get out of here. No, stay. I'm serious about this. And it's like, I got to pray. You know, because it's a task. It's my duty. I have to. And just over recent months, I'm like, that's some stinking thinking. I get because of Christ, to be at the table. Today's not about guilting you out of here today. Today's not about anything other than this. I, I, I want to take you on this journey with me that I'm personally going through and encourage you. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you got a seat at the table. But listen to me, that seat at the table puts the who and the what in place. 
You see, because it's at that table. It's not like, whoa, yeah, God, okay, now that you're here, got something for you. I mean, that's not the attitude. It's this attitude. I cannot believe I get to be at this table with the God of the universe and his word. I don't belong here. I don't deserve it. But I get to because of him. Listen, it's all about the who and the who in the right places. He's the king. I'm the servant. He's life. I'm living for him. When we think about this table, I'm in total need and he is the total source. It brings about this idea of praise. It brings out this idea of repentance. Oh my goodness, God. Come to this table just like willy-nilly. It's an adoring reality, but it also centers not only the who of life, but it centers the what's of life. It's where all the practicalities of my life are discussed. It's the working out, the bringing before God all things of life. My life issues going on, my purposes, decisions, problems, uh, heart issues, other people. It's joining with the Spirit to bring biblical truth to bear on all things of life. What am I talking about here, Doug? Just quit yapping and like, let's get to the Scriptures. Because I want to go to the Scriptures and I think what I'm seeing is seeing this happen. You ready? Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Prayer people center it all on the God that is at work. And in these passages, I believe we see this taking place. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, start with. The psalmist is writing, and let me say it this way. Again, I'm a very visual guy, and the picturing things helps me. This is my, my journey, okay? <laughs> and uh, the psalmist is at the table, and he's recorded down for us some things about being at the table. Look at this. God, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, like right now, here on the news today, Yemen, and the stuff going on there, pulling the embassy out. God, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? How practical is that? But this is what's going on in the, in the person at the table, seated at the table. Oh God, the kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. God, what's going on in life here? I'm at the table with you and I'm just, I'm not like in your face. I'm not telling you what to do. But God, I am saying I'm not getting what's happening here. Uh, because of time, let's go to the end of chapter 2. Look at verse 10. By the way, before I read it, here's the normal pattern of a psalm. I think this will help you. It's helped me greatly in understanding the psalms. Each psalm is its own story. And generally, a psalm begins with a problem or an issue. And you see in the first verses, generally, the pattern of Here's the problem. Here's the issue on the table, God. And it's kind of like the psalmist is recollecting all the things of life that he's, he's been thinking this through, whether it's been in the last hour, the last day, or weeks, or months. And he's writing down this journey, uh, this table journey with the Lord on this issue or situation. And so he records down what the issue is. He, he kind of talks about the issue. And then at the end, he comes to a resolution. And it always comes back to God. 
starting with the problem, finishing with the solution issue to it. Take a look at the end. We're now at the end of chapter 2, verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Now he's speaking to the kings and the nations. By the way, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. But here's my point. Do you see a major change of thinking? Let's just keep going here. You'll, you'll catch with me. Chapter 5, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning, the psalmist says at the table. Verse 2. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, and in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. A thinking starting to take place here. Evil may not dwell with you. Here's the point. He's bringing life to the table. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. Coming to the table, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set the glories the glory, your glory above the heavens. Go to chapter 10. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand afar off? Have you ever felt that way? Thought that? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? Hey, no great Oz reality here. No magic eight ball, but he is asking a question. No rubbing the lamp. And by the way, Santa, I want blank, and I want blank. This is a relationship. Hey, God, this is what's going on in my head, my heart, my life right now. Verse 2, in arrogance, God, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. God, as for all his foes, he puffs at them. Uh, go to uh, verse 16. At the end, we're at the end of the same psalm. Now listen to him as he stated the issue and stated his concerns. And now he has the summation. The Lord is king forever and ever. Hey God, it was like earlier, I'm asking the question of like, Who's the king of the universe? Because it, right now it's not looking like it's you. That's really what was going at the beginning of the psalm. Now look at him. As he's wrestled this through at the table with the Lord, he comes, the Lord is king forever and ever, and the nations perish from his land. Whose land is it? It's his. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Remember before? God, what's the deal with the poor? You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's go to Psalm 13, last one. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. He's at the table. Not with an arrogant, proud, God, you are here for me. But he's being straight up about it. Uh, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. 
lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I'm not trying to teach through each of these psalms. I'm trying to bring to light for me how as I've gone back and look at these psalms, just in all of the psalms, I'm like, man, these dudes got a relationship at the table with God that frankly hasn't been like much of mine. God, I would like blank and blank and blank. And God, will you be with me? Hey, by the way, can I just remind us that prayer is already answered. We really don't need to pray that anymore. God is with us. Well, continue the journey through my unique thinking. And let's go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Um, <laughs> I think one of the most interesting pondering things of Scripture is the second person of the Trinity praying. I think about this. Jesus, God, is praying to God. I wonder what his prayers were like. I wonder how that worked itself out. Were they functional? I think they were incredibly relational. Well, let's just take some looks. We actually don't have a whole lot of actual prayers. But I do want to bring to light the way the Gospels make reference to times, specific times when Christ prays. Just go on the journey with me. All right? Mark chapter 1, verse 32 Let's set the context. Uh, the disciples are not the disciples yet. They haven't been selected yet. It's an early in Christ's ministry, thus Mark chapter 1, verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him, Jesus, all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed how many? Many who were sick with various diseases and cast out how many? Many demons. I mean, this is like one serious ministry night, right? Okay? The whole town's there, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Oh, wait a second. I cannot leave that with one quick rabbit trail. Listen, knowing about Jesus doesn't save a person any more than a demon knowing about Jesus. Demons know and understand who Jesus Christ is. The demons now know and understand what Jesus Christ has done. But demons do not have a relationship, have not repented, and received Jesus Christ as their Savior. Just keep that in mind as we think through life. But here Jesus Christ is uh, interacting. Now look at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning. He was up late the night before. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, went out to desolate, desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, normally, what would oftentimes, in my experience, has been, is the passage right here would be leave, left to this conclusion. You see? You see why you need to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning and pray for four hours? Because Jesus got up before it was dark, or well, 
before it was light. Right? Hey, listen, we have to be very careful with what we grab out of narratives. Just because Jesus did something doesn't mean we're called to do that. Like, if we were, then let's bring the snakes. Okay? So here's part of the thing. Where I'm not going here is saying, you need, if you really love Jesus, you're going to get up at 3 a.m. like Michael does, right? Um, (laughs) Okay? That's not where we're going at. It's just telling that Jesus got up early in the morning and prayed. That's what it's telling us here. But why would the writer say this? Look what took place before and look what took place after. Narratives are telling a story. He was up late at night ministering to people. And then in the morning, he goes out and he prays. Why? I wonder what he's praying. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. All it tells us is he went out and prayed. Oh, well, let's look at what happens right after it because a narrative is telling a story. Verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Hey, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns. There's a whole teaching on this between decisions between good, better, and best. But out of this, the point that I'm looking at today is this thing. If he's up late at night, he goes early in the morning to pray, which still just is kind of weird, Jesus praying. It just blows my mind. And then right after they come and get him and they come and they say, hey, let's go. Or I'm sorry, we've got a great opportunity here to keep doing this for people because there's people in need here. And there were people in need. And Jesus is like, nope, I got to go on to the next town. Does the fact that he was out praying have anything to do with that? Let's just keep going. Let's learn a little bit about Christ. Go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 verse 12. Because please understand, the scriptures written by men, inspired by the Spirit of God, the things that are being written are written for a reason. There is a lot of things that were not included in the scriptures. Revelation tells us that. But the things that are included, there's a reason for it. I'm not trying to find some mystical, scary, woo kind of thing going on here. Let's just observe what's happening. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, when he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. How long? I'm just going to tell you, I've never prayed all night. Never in my life. I don't know if I could. Praying all night. That's a lot of work. I mean, you've really got to be driven to pray all night. Well, he's Jesus. We we blow that off. Wait a second. But he's also 100% man. All night. I wonder what he's praying about. Text doesn't tell us. But it does tell us the event. Verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 that he named apostles. Do we think it's just a dink that this took place there, that it's noted there? I, I don't think so. I, I'm, I'm admitting this is an aspect of sanctified imagination, and I'm trying to be really careful with it, but I think we see a pattern. And you'll see that after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus goes alone and prays before he walks in the water. Uh, hang one page to the left, Luke chapter 5, because his kind of sums it all up. Luke chapter 5, verse 
Let's start with 15. But now, even more, the report of him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. So kind of like the other one before. I mean, there's a whole lot of commotion going on. But look at verse 16. But he would, draw, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. What I'm not getting out of this is saying, hey, you know what, follower of Christ, what you need to do is you need to put in the pattern of your life, the common practice of however long, every so often, I don't know what that is, but that you need to, you have to be someone that has desolate times of quiet, intimate prayer with the Lord. I think we should, but we see that. It's not teaching that. It's teaching this. Jesus Christ would oftentimes get away and pray. Why? I think because of this. All of life centers there. We get so caught up, and rightfully so, in the Gospels of seeing all the activity of stuff. By the way, the Gospel of Mark is like action, 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 action. It's like Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Christ is the hero in it. And yet all this action is going on, and yet at certain places it's put in there that Christ is alone and praying. Why? Because I think this is the time where the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is centering all of life at the table. And in his situation, the table of four God the Father, God the Spirit, the Word of God, I think we're going to see here in just a second in our last passage, and Himself. In fact, let's go there, Matthew 26. Let's go to Gethsemane. Matthew 26. This passage just rocks. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane's with the disciples, hours, if you will, before crucifixion. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul, guys, is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell down on his face and prayed, saying... Now, this is one of very few passages in the Scripture that actually tell us what Jesus prayed. There's a high priestly prayer and some of these other things, but there's very few. Look at this. Look at this. Look at just kind of, if you will, for me, this is where he's coming to the table. My Father. I'm at the table. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. How interesting is that? Did Jesus forget in the process that part of the whole reason for coming was to die on the cross? I mean, that's been the plan from eternity past. And how interesting it is, he's like, oh, Lord, if this could be possible, I think this is the 100% man coming through reality here. Oh, Lord, like, I've seen crucifixions before because he wasn't the first. I've seen him, and if this can pass, please let this cup pass for me. But look at this. He's thinking out loud. He's at the table. He's talking with God. He's, he's bringing in, nevertheless, I think Scripture's coming in reality here as well. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Prayer centers the who, and prayer centers the what. It's this dialogue, as we see with the Psalms. God, I'm here. Here's what's going on. I'm thinking out loud. I'm having this problem, or this is what's going on. Praise you, Lord. This is what's taking place. And then it's like, it's almost this, this dialogue of, all, you know, what's going on? And it's like, but God doesn't talk. No, but God, it works through his word and works through the spirit of God in the process. And this is where it's not the easy magic eight ball. It's the thinking it through. It's the working it through. Of my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, 
So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, the scripture said he had to, you, your will be done. Man, do you see the heavy-duty relationship here? Jesus submitting himself to the Father and the work of the Spirit, submitting himself to the Word of God, centering on the who, centering on the what. I don't have a three-point outline for you today. But I knew we were coming to this discussion to talk about big, bold, bodacious prayer. And folks, listen. If we're going to be the kind of individuals, if we're going to be the kind of people that truly carries out one of our pillars of this church. You can see it on your update. Believing firmly in the power of prayer. If we're going to be the kind of place that, and people that really is all about that, then we have got to have a right view of what prayer really is. It's not a duty. Shame on me for thinking that way. It's not an obligation. It's an opportunity. My goodness. I, we, get to be at the table with the Lord in His Word. We get to. We really get to. We really get to. I want to sit in the chair more. I want to sit in my chair more. Because I get to. I don't deserve to. But I get to. Wow. Prayer centers. It's not the great Oz. It's not the magic eight ball. It's not the genie lamp. It's not the wish list. However, we do come before a great God. We can bring him before him the decisions and struggles that we're having. We can ask for his help in times of predicament. And we can come before him and ask him of things. Amazing. And yet my seat's been too empty. The scriptures talk about continuous prayer and the scriptures talk about times of dedicated prayer. All of those are times in the seat. I want to be more like that. I want for this church to be more like that. People that see it as a joy and an opportunity. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to finish today off by going to the table. We're going to have communion in just 
finish off our last minutes here together because what a perfect setting. As we talk about this kind of coming to the table to have fellowship with the Lord, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you have a seat at the table. And yet here we're talking about the, the, the Lord's table, the, the opportunity to remember what Christ did on the cross by giving of his body and sacrificing his shed blood for you and I. Listen, the only reason we have the opportunity to be at this table is because of what the Lord Jesus did and the provision of salvation through what he's done. So let's go to the table. So if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we'd love to have you participate. If that's the kind of thing in your life where you're just not sure yet, uh, just, just don't participate. That's cool. Uh, we love the fact that people are on a journey trying to figure out what's going on. But this is a time for those who know Christ to be able to remember what he's done. And uh, so Nick is going to play a song here and just quiet time. Would you just take some time before the Lord? If there's any things in your life that just need to be made right, maybe it's just your whole view of the whole relationship. Listen, right now, folks, we're at the table. Right now, we're at the table. And when you're ready, just come on to grab a the bread and the juice and come back to your seat, and then we'll partake together.